three-dimensional transforming musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today we get to hear from an old, uh, or I should say a young old friend of ours, Cat Lakey. You'll remember Cat from several podcasts over the past few years, one in which she and her sister Alexa interviewed their parents to uh, talk about psychedelics. Well, then I uh, talked Cat and Alexa into taking on the massive project of creating an audiobook version of Leonard Picard's masterpiece, The Rose of Paracelsus. And you'll hear more about this in a few minutes. But I should point out that the primary purpose of this interview with Kat is to publicize her soon-to-close fundraiser for the opening of the world's first psychedelic athenum in New York City. And I apologize for only getting this out just a short time before her fundraiser ends, but the request came in when I was in the final days of recovering from COVID, and, well, it kind of slipped through the cracks. So uh, here at the last minute, I recruited Charles Lighthouse to conduct the interview with Kat that we are about to listen to. As it turned out, uh, I think Charles did a much better job than I could have because, uh, well, I already knew so much of Kat's story about escaping from a Peruvian jungle during the early weeks of the pandemic lockdowns. It's a really interesting and harrowing story, but (laughs) Kat has done so many other things since then that I probably wouldn't have remembered to even ask about the jungle escape. In fact, uh, instead of me just talking about it, let's... uh, Go ahead and listen to this interview right now, and I'll come back afterwards with a few final thoughts. Good afternoon. I'm Charles Lighthouse, the co-host of the twice-weekly Psychedelic Salon Community Meetings. You can join us by supporting the Psychedelic Salon Patreon. We meet every Monday evening at 6.30 Pacific Time and every Thursday morning at 11.30 Pacific Time. And uh, you can be a part of the ongoing community talking about what's happening in psychedelics, your integration experiences, and more with Lorenzo and folks from the Psychedelic Salon. And this year, the salon is returning with a program of new talks, including from Palenque Norte and the Psychedelic Assembly, which our guest this afternoon was instrumental in shaping, as well as interviews like this one. Uh, we're also open to submissions, especially of lectures by psychedelic elders and emerging elders. So if you have some archival tape of somebody amazing uh, that you can share with us, please reach out. I am at charles at psychedelicsalon.com. Today we are talking to Kathleen Lakey of the Psychedelic Athenum in New York City, a new psychedelic library, event, and co-working space dedicated to psychedelic culture. I first met Kat at the Psychedelic Assembly in New York last fall, which was a small-by-design conference that gathered an extraordinary range of elders and emerging elders from Dennis McKenna and William Leonard Picard and Julie Holland to exciting newer voices in the community to be talking about the contours of the psychedelic environment. And it was within this space called the Blue Building in New York City which is an island of psychedelic thought within the strange finance-oriented contours of the east side of Manhattan. 
And I was really struck by the sincerity, skill and organization, thoughtfulness to the small details and thoughtfulness to the big picture that Kat and her team brought into creating this environment and this conference. So it was with great excitement when we learned that they are working as a team with Kat leading the effort to use the blue building where the conference occurred as a springboard for a permanent space dedicated to psychedelic culture in New York. And it's it's exciting. It's rooted in a long history of Athenums, which would certainly be something that tickles Terrence McKenna to no end, to know that there's something of this nature. And so to start, Kat, I would like to, and because it's urgent, please bring us to date on, on what the vision for the Athenum is, how people can get involved, and what your immediate needs are for it. Yeah, so the the vision is to have a brick-and-mortar home base for the psychedelic community uh, in New York City, where people can can stop by five days a week, uh, after hours, nights and weekends when there's events, but a, a place where they can come by at any point to to meet people, to connect, to grab a cup of coffee, to read psychedelic literature, because um, it's going to be a library space uh, as well as a bookstore, sort of a museum quality element to it. We have a thousand square foot storefront at this, uh, like you said, the blue building in, in Manhattan. Um, so the location is secured, but we're currently running a crowdfunding campaign for the build out. So we need to buy a lot more books before we can call ourselves a library <laughs> and uh some co-working desks and some other repairs to get it finalized. Um, but the dream is that it'll be sort of a place where all the different uh, sides of the community can come together, um, you know, from the drug policy people to the people who are in the, in the psychedelic uh, industry and in, in the pharmaceutical side or the medical side, researchers, students, uh, you know, even just recreational users or people who are curious about psychedelics, a, a place that welcomes everyone where they can come and, and meet each other and share ideas and kind of cross pollinate and make, make new friends. That's sort of the, the goal. And and something that I felt uh, when I was within the space is how much care was was put into just creating this this welcoming environment through subtle details. Like the the thing that I caught on the way out the door that totally blew my mind is that there was an IBM Selectric on top of a glass display case that had a a stained sheet of paper in it, and I looked at it. And typed on there was this 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 letter, and, and maybe you can tell me a little bit about what I'm describing. Yeah, so I the the room that you're describing is the room that's going to become the the Athenaeum, and I my my friend who owns the building has three different typewriters from various points in time. One's from like the 80s, the one you're describing, and then a couple are from like probably the 40s or 50s. So in, in preparing for the psychedelic assembly in September, I was trying to do all these little finishing touches. And one night I was up until I think two or three in the morning. Uh, I had printed off pages from True Hallucinations, uh, one of Richard Evans Schulte's books and an Aldous Huxley, uh, Doors of Perception and printed it off with like a fake, fake typewriter font and then tea stained it and put it in there to make it look like, you know, the authors had, had typed them up. I'm glad, I'm glad someone noticed that little, that little uh, detail because it, you know, it, it took a little bit of effort, but I'm glad I'm glad it didn't go unnoticed. <laughs> well, that's what was so cool to me about what you and your team were doing is that there were a lot of little details. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of little details. I mean, looking at the 
at the bookcases and you know you're you're looking at my library right now i'm obviously a book fetishist but you know seeing you know all of these even in the, its infancy seeing all of these books that really represented a compendium of psychedelic thought and that's one of the things that's really interesting to me about the 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 athenium is that in addition to being a, a networking and a co-working space you're attempting to compile the the body of of published information tell me a little bit about what that looks like what what the shape of the library is going to be uh, we're currently accepting book donations and we're working with um, Synergetic Press. They're going to be one of our, our partners in this. So they just send us uh, like 16 or 17 of their titles and we're going to slowly build out our, uh, our our bookshelves with donations. And, and once the crowdfunding campaign ends, we'll, we'll buy a, more books too. There's, I mean, there's thousands of books on psychedelics out now and, and you know, a new one each day. So yeah. Uh, as far as how we're going to organize it, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I've I've been thinking maybe by like substance or by subject matter. Uh, I mean, there's you know you could fill an entire bookshelf just with books on DMT or ayahuasca. So tell me about the the contours of your current need. I understand that you're working in a crowdfunding campaign right now and uh, want some direct support from the community. So tell me a little bit about what what your goals are and how people can get involved, both in terms of providing financially and providing otherwise. Yeah, so we have the we have the space secured, but it's essentially an empty thousand square foot store storefront right now. Um, we have some books, uh, but we're going to we're raising money essentially to buy fur, uh, furniture, bookshelves, a lot more books. We need doors to partition the space, some electrical rewiring, uh, essentially just a little bit of money to get the, the place going and, and get everything started and initiated. But I mean, if, if anyone wants to contribute, we're gladly accepting any book donations or furniture, um, volunteer assistance, just any, any in-kind help is, is also appreciated. It doesn't have to be any, any monetary donation. So, and, and it's a, it's a reasonably modest goal for that kind of build out. I, I think you're looking for what, $15,000? Yeah, so it's it, it it's a reasonably modest goal, and that's fifteen to thirty people of means that will have some connection to the communities in New York, giving a little bit uh, deeply. So hopefully that you're able to reach that. And it's a GoFundMe campaign. How can people find the find it? I mean, we'll put it in the show notes for this show also. But uh, where what's your base URL? Uh, it's on Indiegogo, and okay. you can also find it on our website, thepsychedelicassembly.com. Okay, cool. So, Kat, I'd like to get a little bit more into your origins uh, because I think you are uniquely qualified to run a space like this. Uh, but I want to I want to understand how you found your way into psychedelics uh, from the lens of also how the Athenium would have served your younger self. It's kind of a long winding path. I guess I, I first got interested in psychedelics probably in my late late teens. I took I took acid and with my sister, and we were both fascinated with it. But we. We lived in uh, Arizona at the time and, and didn't really have anyone else we knew who had had these experiences or we could talk to about it. So this kind of space would have been incredibly useful to me as as a young person, having a place I could have gone to to have educated myself, to met other people in in the scene who I could talk to about these things. Because, you know, these experiences can be incredibly transformative, but if you don't have anyone to relate to about them, it, it can be really hard to to process them. I guess I've been sort of quietly working in the background with psychedelics for a while now. I, I made a viral video back in 2011 based off of those experiences, kind of on a video montage of a Charlie Chaplin speech from the end of the film, The Great Dictator. 
after that, I kind of did some video editing for uh, various organizations in the psychedelic scene. Uh, Copy, the Ayahuasca Hub, which I'm not sure is around anymore. Jason Silva, I made a video for him. I did one for the Plant Medicine, Thank You Plant Medicine campaign. That was a couple years ago. Yeah, and then just uh, through some personal personal points in my life, I ended up meeting Dr. Dennis McKenna in Hawaii after I had taken ayahuasca a few times, and I, I knew I wanted to work with it long term. I needed to in, in a certain sense, and so I asked him for a recommendation for an ayahuasca who would take me on as an apprentice, uh, preferably a woman, preferably someone who spoke English because I didn't speak any Spanish and uh, somewhere safe because I was traveling alone. And so he referred me to a woman named Jessica Bertram, who was working in Cusco at the time. She was German, but she'd been living in Peru for about 20, 25 years, living in the Amazon, really, really immersed in this stuff. And yeah, so he gave me her contact info. I wrote to her and ended up uh, working with her in, in the Peruvian Amazon for about three years. So what was your what was your path? So you began with LSD with your sister, which you don't hear a lot of people talking about starting with LSD these days. So kudos to you for that one. And 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 it, and it it then moves into ayahuasca. So could you give us a little bit of your your psychedelic CV? And you know, I, I always feel like different medicines do different things. What different medicines did for you as you matured into the medicine? Yeah, I mean, I guess I, my starting point would have been cannabis. Um, I feel like that was my first quote unquote plant spirit. Even when I was, I started smoking when I was about 14 and I felt like I was communicating with the soul of the plant in a sense. And I was just fascinated by, um, you know, exploring my own mind and, and altered states of consciousness. And that sort of led me to the music of the sixties. Like I love the Beatles, uh, Jefferson Airplane, Pink Floyd, and all of these, all of this culture and art and music that I loved seems to point to LSD and like, you know, bright red arrow. So I, I, tracked it down when I was in my late teens because I was just so curious why what what were the Beatles singing about? What was all this this hype? And as soon as I took it, I, you know, it it all clicked and it kind of changed the course of my life, I would say. And then from there? From there, uh experimented quite a bit with LSD. Started taking psilocybin because it was a little bit easier to um measure the dose, I would say. And also I was very fond of like the visual aspect of the experience too. And and for me, mushrooms were always more visual. Around that time, I, I was listening to like pretty much every Terrence McKenna and Dennis McKenna lecture I could get my hands on. Um, since I didn't have any friends in high school, I could talk to this stuff about it. It was sort of like, I don't know, so it sort of felt like I was actually connecting with someone who understood the things I'd experienced. That's how I found the salon years and years ago. I was listening to pretty much every old lecture I could could find. And yeah, I mean, I, I smoked DMT a handful of times around then and then moved to Berkeley out of Arizona, I guess, because, you know, same for same reasons, we were trying to find a, trying to find our people and they, they didn't seem to be in Phoenix. So we went to what seemed like the hub of psychedelic culture at the time, which was the Bay Area. And then sort of, I guess, lost, lost the thread of psychedelics for a while as I was coming into my own in, in my early 20s and then just was struggling with some some really intense personal issues uh, which led me to ayahuasca. It's interesting that you hear you say you know lost the thread and it's intriguing in the psychedelic community right now we're building this kind of professional class of psychedelic people and that's good in a lot of ways. In other ways there are times in one's life where there seems to be a call to the medicines and there's times in one's life where the medicines are always kind of in the periphery, but not necessarily calling you uh, to share consciousness at that time. So, so I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to 
how you knew when to answer the call to medicine, how you knew when not to, and, and specifically for people that are navigating this, why it's okay to take a break. Well, in my early 20s, I think the break came just because I was I was sort of grappling with with coming of age and moving to a new city and making new friends who weren't particularly interested in psychedelics and you know, we're much more into alcohol culture. So I, I sort of gravitated towards, towards them. And, and that's, I, I would say that's sort of how I lost the thread at, at that period. Right now, I, I am on sort of a ayahuasca hiatus, you know, after having taken it so many times, I'm taking a, an intentional break from it, doing what my, my teacher always referred to as the homework, which is mm-hmm. the part nobody likes to do, but it's the, uh, the after, you know, after the ceremony, it's it's integrating all of the stuff you learned into your day to day life and making changes and and applying the lessons you learned. the The breaks are important, I think. Like when they're you know, especially when they're needed, and just taking some intentional time away from it to process and to to apply the lessons. What does that look like for you? What What are some like long term effects integration strategies for you know integration as a lifestyle? Seems to be what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, some of my biggest lessons down there were about lear- learning how to communicate with people better to being less, being less shy and being able to just like reach out to people for help when I needed to. And, um, you know, try trying to connect with people more, which is, is sort of what I've been focusing on with the psychedelic assembly and with the Athenaeum is it's, it's my own personal lesson, but it's also something that I feel is really needed in the world. You know, we all, we all could use a little bit more human connection and, and love in our lives. So it's, I'm doing it for myself as well as for for other people, I guess. Well, and that's something that we learn in in, in the medicine that a lot of how we're showing up to resource ourselves is so that we can resource the the, the collective. And you know, certainly in my recent experiences with ayahuasca, asking for help was like one of the hardest parts. Yeah, it's it's oh, yeah. super super challenging. Mm-hmm. But you know, we can't do it alone. It's you know, it's a collective effort. Yeah. You know, we've all met that guy and I hate to say it, but it's kind of usually a guy who sits with the medicine a couple of times and then decides that they're going to be a shaman, you know, and that the medicine's their calling and, and it's okay to have that thought. Like I'm not disparaging it, but then they start talking about it really loudly to anybody that's going to listen. And that's where you see like the, the memes that were going around around Halloween about the spirit Halloween costumes for psychedelic people. You know, it's, it's easy to say, I'm going to go serve the medicine, but to actually do it, to actually reach out to Dr. McKenna and say, you know, this is what I'm looking for. And to actually submit your resume to the plants. How'd you do it? How did you know that that call was a real call? Um, I mean, I honestly, in my heart of heart, I'm not sure I ever really believed I was qualified to serve ayahuasca to other people, but I think I knew that I needed to learn those practices and walk that path in order to heal myself. You know, my, my teacher was very, very much a traditionalist and very strict, and she had me go very slow and learn all the really like granular details about the different plants and the different, all their different applications and, and the whole web of life that surrounds ayahuasca and the Amazon, you know, it's, it's not just, it's not just ayahu- serving ayahuasca down there. It's, it's an entire, you know, biological pharmacy of, of other 
plants and practices that, that pull it all together. And it, it wasn't, it was fun at times, but a lot of it wasn't fun. And it was, it was a challenge, but I, yeah, I, th- I think I knew the entire time I was down there that it, it, it wasn't gonna, that I wasn't cut out to, to serve medicine to other people. And that the, why I, the, the real reason I was down there was to, I guess, find my own, um, find my own healing. How did that healing, I guess I, I, I want to know a little bit about your day to day and how your day to day down there helped reveal your, the things that you had to do for your healing? Well, I, so I lived in Cusco and then about two or three weeks every month, we would go, we would drive up the Andes and then down into the, um, the Amazon in the upper, uh, Madre de Dios region, which is sort of like South, Southeast of Machu Picchu. And what ended up happening is I, I became sort of the retreat coordinator. So I would be the, the person that people would, would get in contact with when they wanted to go to the center, which was very small. We took like three or four people max, um, once a month. And I would, I would bring them from the airport in Cusco in a van down to the jungle and kind of prepare them for what they were going into both physically and psychologically. And then I would just sort of be the, I wouldn't say the ayahuasca's apprentice. I was more like her secretary. So I would do a lot of odd jobs for kind of assist these people to be an ear for them to talk to whenever they needed help. I mean, I wasn't an integration specialist at all, but like I just, you know, I'd been through it enough my on my own end that I, I could offer whatever advice I had. And so it was basically a lot of a lot of just like helping people through the the Amazonian climate and the ayahuasca experiences as much as I could, you know, trying to hold space with tobacco and it sounds like an extraordinary amount of of empathy and 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 compassion was demanded in that work. Did did you ever experience compassion fatigue? How how did you maintain the the ability to hold space for people in such a, a or in, in, when they're in such a porous and volatile state of mind? I think the fact that I was, you know, I would be drinking the ayahuasca every time I, I went down there or almost every time helps with the compassion fatigue because they're uh, I, I, don't, I don't know how to explain it. Like there was, it, it never seemed to run out. Like every time I, I touched base with the ayahuasca, it always reminded me that we're all, how how deeply connected we all are and how, you know, we're all basically one consciousness and just to hold to hold compassion for the people who were down there because every, every single person I met down there had some form of trauma they were working through. It was, it's, it's what I, I kept seeing time and time again, you know, something had happened to them in their childhood or young adulthood that they were, they were processing and working through. And it's, it was, it was hard, you know, it was, it was hard to hear these stories, but it also was beautiful because it's, it shows sort of this commonality between people that we all, you know, we all have this, these similar experiences that we're working through and, the only thing that helps us work through it is is each other, really. And you had mentioned that this specific intention of working with a a, a female ayahuasca and concerns about safety as a woman in her twenties working in the in, in in that region. Can you tell me a bit about what? you experience from the lens of gender while you were working in that space with those medicines in that part of the world? I mean, the, the region I went to Cusco always seemed incredibly safe to me. I mean, I was, I was nervous when I first went down there, I was about 26, I think, because I'd never traveled outside of the country alone or, or ever period. But 
after after a little few months um i got really used to it and it it was i don't know it was a very safe and welcoming environment for me i'd walk alone at night which is something that like and i felt totally comfortable doing it but like even at times in san francisco i I would had felt less safe than in san francisco or sorry than in um peru so it was um I think it largely depends on like where in South America you go. The, this particular region I was in and, and the part of the jungle always felt very, um, very safe. Yeah. Even as a woman. Advice for, for other women that are, that are called to, to walk this path that you were walking. Yeah. I mean, I would say do, do your research as much as you can and, and figure out, uh, you know, get recommendations for, for people to work with really solid recommendations, personal ones from people you trust if you can, because there, there are places out there that aren't, that aren't safe. You know, that we all hear stories about, you know, about issues that happen in other centers. So just, just do a lot of research and try to find, trying to find a solid recommendation if you can from someone you trust, like I did. And what's interesting to hear you talk about these experiences is that you knew that you were called to, spend time in, in deep study with the medicine in the, in the medicine's home environment as part of your own healing, but you also felt that your calling was elsewhere. And, and that opens the, the door to asking for, there's so many people right now, and, and I really saw this at the, at the assembly, that are just looking for their purpose within the psychedelic environment. And our culture says, be an entrepreneur. But there's so many ways to access purpose within the medicine rather than, you know, being that guy that decides he's a shaman or being a, being an influencer in the space. How did your experience open the door to really tune into, well, what is my call? Like, if I'm not called to be a vegetalista, how can I still support the medicine? What, what, what do you do when, when your initial call isn't actually what you're called to, but you still want to stay involved? I mean, I, I I don't know how to give advice to other people. I mean, my my own story was a little weird because I didn't I didn't actually fully confront that or even acknowledge it to myself until the last retreat I ever went on, which was March. It started March third, twenty twenty, and ended on March. It was March March tenth through the seventeenth. Sorry, it was. Um, basically the week from hell uh, where everything shut down COVID wise. We were completely off the grid and we had no idea you know, all the borders had closed, all the the flights were grounded, Peru declared martial law. So that, like I, I, that week I acknowledged, my my teacher actually confronted me. She said, I don't think you're cut out to do this. And I said, you know, you're right. I, I am not, but I don't know. I don't know what to do next. And then a few days later, we tried leaving the center and we're met by the military and people in hazmat suits. And we ended up getting um, stuck in the jungle for two and a half weeks in this very dramatic evacuation. The U S embassy was going to send a helicopter. It was, it was a whole thing, <laughs> but that was sort of like my send off from the jungle. And at, at that point I ha- had no idea what I was doing. I, I felt like I'd completely lost my calling and any stability in my life. I mean, I loved living in Peru and I loved working at that center. And even if I, wasn't going to become an ayahuasca. I was still planning on staying down there, but the pandemic sort of derailed that and forced me to leave. So yeah, for about a year after I was kind of just wandering a little lost, I I went and lived with my sister in in Santa Cruz in the Redwoods. And then there was a massive wildfire and we had to evacuate there too. (laughs) So, and then it, it led me to, uh, to New York, I guess, through Leonard Picard, who I'd been interest- introduced to through Lorenzo and then the project with the Rose, which is kind of another long story. <laughs> well, 
Okay, and I want to talk about that, but I also want to go back because the highlights that you just gave us are harrowing. Can 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 you unpack a little bit from us, like being forced into radical integration? Yeah, I mean, the it was it was like I said, it was the last retreat. Like we when we left, everything was still pretty normal. Um, you know, people were joking about COVID, but nothing had had really changed. Uh, and then because of where the the center was situated, we had no out no communication with the outside world at all. We were in complete isolation for like the worst possible eight days. We could have been out of contact. Peru had halted ground transportation the day before we were leaving. So like when we tried leaving the center, that's that's when we were detained. And yeah, like basically held under house arrest for about two and a half weeks at my teacher Jessica's house um, in this this town just outside of the center. We I mean, everyone was, you know, flooding the embassy with with phone calls at the time. But we were able to get through because um, one of the one of the participants with us was a veteran. So his parents contacted their congressman or senator or something, and they were able to get through to the embassy. But had we not had an ex uh, military with us, I don't I'm not sure the U.S. government would have cared at all that we were all stuck there but it was it was probably bad optics so they they wanted to come get this this gentleman but it was it was it was an interesting situation because there were there was a guy from france a woman from norway and a, and a guy from england with us so we had to coordinate between four different embassies to get all of us out at the same time and that was not an easy t- task <laughs> so and were you running those logistics like were you were you and jessica having to keep everybody else calm while you were managing this unprecedented situation I, Jessica was, was the calmest I'd ever seen her. She'd, she'd been through hell before. I mean, she'd saved people from snake, you know, she, she was a rainforest tour guide for about 10, 15 years. So she'd seen it all. She'd saved people from snake bites and all sorts of jungle trauma. I, I was the youngest person there and I was barely holding it together. I mean, I was crying a lot and, um, they, they were actually probably better, better at support systems than I was just because I was, I was freaking out, you know? Well, rightfully so. I mean, what, what a trauma at any age. Yeah. Yeah. And so like they were going to, we, we ended up being the number one case at the U.S. Embassy in Peru just because of like the situation where we were, um, the fact that like there was one road in and out and that it had, landslides and the supply trucks weren't getting through yeah they were going to send an uh, helicopter at one point to come get us but we couldn't get the necessary papers to clear that so wow yeah so that's that's that was my 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 exit from peru but uh it was not how i was planning on going by any means are, are, are you comfortable talking about who you were when you arrived in peru and and, and and what your relationship with the medicine showed you to become who you are now yeah, I mean, I I was much less confident in myself when I went down there, but but having been spent all that time in in the Amazon and and in the throes of some wonderful and also horrible ayahuasca experiences, I I feel like I've become a lot a lot stronger, like a much more capable person that I can handle handle anything that's thrown at me at this point because there's some unusual experiences under my belt to compare it to. You know, no matter no matter what happens in New York, it's so far it hasn't compared to being held hostage in the jungle, basically. <laughs> right. And there's a really beautiful thread in your story that's so relevant to what's happening in the world right now about finding that space of of resilience and compassion through these traumatic events because at at this point i think everybody's traumatized everybody's traumatized some of us have better trauma stories than others and yours is a pretty good covid trauma story Uh, but ultimately everybody's feeling some degree of trauma and so there's this invitation to post-traumatic growth and to 
finding ways to 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 reinvent ourselves after this. So, you know, I can't imagine more of a 180. And I say this as somebody that lived in New York for 11 years. I can't imagine more of a 180 than going from living in the Peruvian Amazon and adjacent to it to living in New York. So can you tell me a bit about how you landed there and and whether and how it embraced you and, and, and just what the scene is for you right now? Yeah, so uh, I I am in New York right now largely in in part because of Lorenzo and him introducing me to Leonard Picard, who I was I was making a serial podcast for the salon for a while based off of the Rosa Parks. Leonard had connected me to the gentleman who owns the building where I was where I held the psychedelic assembly. So when Leonard was released from prison in late summer 2020, it was a wild year. It was after, like I said, the, the fires uh, nearly burned my sister's house down and I had to evacuate there with her too. Um, and once he was released, my friend, Michael, who who's here in New York, he said, you know, like, hey, let's go visit Leonard. Like he's, he's out of prison. This was kind of a miracle. And I, I really wanted to meet him. So we flew out to Santa Fe and met him in person yeah, it was it was great actually f- connecting with him. I'd sent him tons and tons of emails uh, over the years, you know, relating to the podcast and just keeping, you know, keeping touch in touch with him. But I think my my friend Michael could kind of tell that I was sort of lost after you know after leaving Peru and and not really having anywhere or anything I was passionate about during the pandemic. So he invited me to New York to this job that I work at now at the Blue Building. And yeah, it was a very different. Uh, <laughs> Very different environment going from from the jungle to midtown Manhattan, where there, you don't see trees anywhere, really. How's that changing you? It was a hard adjustment period. I mean, the lack of nature, like all last year, it was really kind of up up and down. I, I organized a few uh, activist rallies like surrounding the protection of the Amazon rainforest and got like about 20, 30 people to come out once in front of the Brazilian consulate and once in front of the UN. Most of them were children, but I, I still see that as a win because it's their future. That That was sort of what I was pouring my energy into last year was environmental activism. And then, yeah, and then this year it all just sort of took off with the conference and it's, it, it feels like a new, I don't know, a, a new breath of, of fresh air or something. It's like, it's, an, it's, it, it almost feels like I was meant to leave the jungle when I did and that I was supposed to be here and, and doing this. It, it all feels kind of faded. It makes me happy to know that, that there's aspects of your life that you got involved in that aren't strictly psychedelic because this is something that I struggle with and other people struggle with is how to have perspective beyond simply being steeped in the psychedelic world. So it's it's nice to hear that you have that that activism activity and, and that you were engaging the people that have to be native to the 21st century in it. That's really good to hear. Yeah. So let's talk about Leonard. The Rosas Paracelsus is... Nobody understands it yet. It's one of the most important books, I think, to come out of the psychedelic humanities in this century. And you decided to create a audio experience of it, which I think you did a really cre- a creditable job on the pieces that you were able to produce. Tell me about your experiences with the text and 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 what it was like to work with that text in and and bring it out into the world in this different shape it's 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 a very very big task yeah i i had made an episode of the 
the psychedelic salon with my sister, Alexa, uh, back in, I think maybe like 2016, 2017, where we, we interviewed our parents and this, this gentleman who had put an ayahuasca art exhibition up in the, the small town my parents lived in, which normally was completely devoid of culture. So we did that one episode. And then like, a, I think it was like a few months later, Lorenzo approached us with this project for, for the Rose. And I, I had never heard of Leonard or I had, Vaguely remembered hearing about him from that Hamilton Morris uh, piece uh, on Vice, but when when he asked us if we wanted to take this on, it seemed like an incredible way of meeting people in the community and just connecting with a lot of really cool people. And it was it was a hard opportunity to pass up. I think uh, we got copies of the book and just kind of dug into it. And it's it's not an easy read, but it is a really fascinating story. And I think making the podcast in and of itself kind of helped me understand it because I was, you know, communicating with these people who would kind of deconstruct all the chapters and explain it, which was helpful to me as well. Cause a lot of times there were, there were parts that I didn't understand or would miss until I had this commentary and, you know, was editing it and adding it in. And then it would kind of click. Tell me about connecting with Leonard, both while he was incarcerated and, and afterwards. Leonard and I would write to each other when he was in prison, which was kind of wild. I used to tell people I had probably one of the most unusual pen pals in the world. It was while I was living in Peru and I lived alone and didn't have a ton of friends out there. So at times it was, I know he really needed communication with the outside world. And I would try to try to make my letters detailed and descriptive. So it felt like he had some, some glimpse of something outside of maximum security prison but it was also really helpful for me to have to have a friend someone to write to and to talk about you know what i was doing in the jungle and what all the weird experiences i was going through so it was felt like the relationship went both ways you know what's he like as a person um he's a really really cool guy i mean he's he's incredibly intelligent he's very soft-spoken he he's like the kind of person who like when you meet him he you feel like he's like looking into your soul which can be a little uncomfortable for people, I think, at times. But I don't know, like, he sees people. And yeah, he's got a really good sense of humor. A, a little dark, I would say. But how could it not be after, you know, what he's gone through? He's, uh, he's a really funny guy, too. Which I'm not sure comes through in, in The Rose or, like, any of his uh, talks that he's done at, like, Horizons and stuff. He's got a, he's got a really really good sense of humor. He does. And he, he, he's got this almost priestly quality. But then, but then on a dime, he'll, like, you'll, you'll see the guy that ran a clandestine operation show up and he'll just like oscillate between those, those, those dimensions. But what I've seen with, with him and in, in the way he interacts with folks in the community is that he has a very expansive view of what we all can be. And I, and I feel like he's looking at the 2080s all the time. So how has he been influential in your shift into, into this current project and just establishing a vision for you of what's possible? The, the the psychedelic assembly was largely um, influenced by him. I mean, I, I wouldn't be living in New York if it weren't for, like I said, him connecting me to my friend who owns this building. And when I decided to to start the conference and to create it, he was the first person I reached out to. I you know I asked him if he would speak at it, and he he agreed. And you know then I reached out to Dennis McKenna and Julie Holland, who I knew Julie through my friend who owns the building here. And basically, once I had the three of them pinned down everyone else kind of fell fell into place yeah i mean leonard has come to visit us here quite a few times he he was a large inspiration for for this project and what's 
interesting about Leonard in so many ways is that while there's so much happening in the science and law part of psychedelics and he's really involved in it, he also wrote this literary masterpiece. And that points in a certain way to how the humanities are potentially going to be a bigger part of what the psychedelic culture is in this decade. And and one of the things I loved about the assembly was how you recruited Sarah Rose Susskind and Adam Strauss to MC. They both do a lot of comedy rooted in psychedelics and creative writing rooted in psychedelics. They are part of this very small but in need of nurturing humanities trend. So, so to what extent do you see art and literature having a role in the psychedelic culture in this decade and, and, and how can it have a bigger role? It's a huge part of my life for me personally. Um, I don't know if you had much of a chance to talk to my parents who were walking around the conference. They're kind of chatterboxes, so they talked to pretty much everyone they could, but they're they're both artists. My dad's a cartoonist and my mom's a um, oil painter illustrator. And so like I, I grew up with art and the humanities and it's it's been a major part of my upbringing and you know something I, I just really care about. I, I think it's it's should be a huge factor leading into this call it new psychedelic renaissance whatever you want to call it. I mean the art and and humor and uh, literature and all these things can really they they connect us on a deeper level than even just like you know going to a, going to a talk and watching someone a researcher explain their their findings. You know it's watching a comedy show together or a beautiful dance or a musical performance is those things I feel like can actually connect people on a different level than than a lot of what's offered in the psychedelic space right now which is why during the the conference we tried bringing in as much of that as we could all these different elements you know dancers and musicians and artists because it's 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 an important part of of, of what i believe in so yeah I, I agree with you when when we look at the history of psychedelic culture you can see how what really help people cope with big social changes was the music and the art and the the film and to a certain extent the theater of the 1960s and 70s that were directly trying to make sense of the culture and and it, it feels somewhat lopsided to me that right now so much of the literary output and uh and and cultural output around psychedelics is is really rooted in in this non-fiction scientific almost transactional bias so it's it it seems like we're really in need of a of a wave of creativity to to just help us make sense of it yeah yeah and that's that's sort of what i'm hoping this place will be is like sort of a hub where all of those things can kind of come together and just like pure creative expression and a way for people to to access that the psychedelic visionary art and music and and comedy and all, all the creative side of it too. What can we do to encourage people to explore that side of themselves? What can we do to basically what I'm saying is, hey, artists, writers, make psychedelics part of your subject matter. How cat can we encourage that? I mean, I'm not sure you can encourage, I mean, you can, you can encourage artists and writers to experiment with psychedelics. You could also encourage the people who are already experimenting with psychedelics to become artists. I mean, I feel like everyone's got that inside them and it, having an outlet, it's a good release having somewhere to pour creative energy. So, you know, it might, it might be a matter of inspiring existing authors, you know, like the way Michael Pollan was inspired to write books about psychedelics and to dabble in that. But it, I think it's also good to encourage people who are already in, you know, already having those experiences to express themselves creatively as well. And, and how do you see the Athena and your future events playing a role in that? 
Yeah, I mean, we the what we're planning to do is have it be uh, sort of a library museum performance space hybrid where we'll have events, you know, author events, literary events, book signings, talks, lectures, and, and whatnot. But we'd also like to have comedy shows and musical performances and rotating exhibitions of visual art, performance art, museum style exhibitions of historical artifacts or archival documents or all sorts of stuff like that based on various themes that we're going to be doing month to month. So we really want to engage. There, there's so many creative people in New York. I mean, there's so many artists and musicians and performers. I it's it's concentrated here. So we really want to reach out and bring a lot of those people in. So you have a lot of good experiences. What is bubbling up in you creatively? When are we going to get to listen to your story or read uh, your book or look at your art? What What's in there, Kat? We, we, there's got to be something. So I, I did write a book about everything in Peru and the dramatic escape from it, but I'm I'm honestly, I've, I haven't really shared it with anyone yet. I'm not sure if I wrote it for anyone but myself as sort of a way to integrate everything that happened. People keep asking me to like to share it and to try to get it published, but it's, yeah, I'm not sure it's it's meant for, for everyone or if it was just meant for me, if that makes sense. But yeah, other, other art, I mean, I make digital art. Uh, last year I was doing a bunch of large-scale chalk drawings on the roof of this building relating to Amazonian Amazonian rainforest conservation, Shipibo patterns, and giant jaguars and anacondas in Manhattan. I kind of just follow my heart, you know, like whatever is inspiring me. I play guitar sometimes. Yeah, I don't I don't really share a whole lot of it publicly. <laughs> How do you feel when you're creative? Uh, it's it feels like a therapeutic outlet. Like I've, I've talked to artist friends about this before and they all kind of echo the same sentiment that like, if, if you're not doing something creative, that creative energy can turn into self-destructive energy. So it's like, you need to have something you're passionate about to pour yourself into, or it can, doesn't end up being good. It's interesting that, you know, we've spent almost an hour talking and when I asked you to talk about your creativity, that's when you started smiling and really lighting up. So there, there, there there's something in there that we would all love to read. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> so you're an impressive young leader. You work with the medicine, you're cultivating events, you're cultivating spaces. And I know how hard it is to hear people saying flattering things about you. So apologies. But we do need to acknowledge that you're stepping up and making something. And you're stepping up and making something in one of the hardest places in the United States to actually step up and make something. So what do you need from your elders what do you want from your peers and how do you want to make an impact on shaping the psychedelic culture of our decade? Uh, what I would ask from the elders is maybe advice and guidance because it's all kind of new, new territory for me. So anyone who, who's hearing this and has words of advice for opening a, a place like this, I mean, I'm not sure there's ever been quite anything like this, but I, I know there's people have plenty of experiencing experience uh, running library spaces or um, performance venues or whatever. So any any sort of guidance in that domain would be would be incredible. As far as for my peers, support with the project. Like I'd love for people to just you know reach out and not even necessarily donate. I mean, like ultimately, what I care more about is just you know hearing that this this idea actually resonates with people. That it's something that people would want to exist. That's what's going to keep me going and keep me keep me doing it is knowing that there's a need you know that there is a need for it and that people want this want this to happen so yeah words words of encouragement i guess from from peers 
And what was, sorry, what was the last one? <laughs> and, and, and how do you want to help shape the, the psychedelic culture of, of the 20s and going into the 30s with, with this space and your other activities? I mean, I don't know if there's anything particularly conscious guiding it. My mentality is that by holding space for people from different walks of life and, and different perspectives to come together in an environment, you know, where they they can relax and let their guard down and have fun together. You know, people who don't necessarily talk or wouldn't even be in the same circle normally. I think that just like that, that formula alone will lead to good things. The cross pollination of ideas and, and this multidisciplinary discussion that could happen from all these different you know, all these different parts of our community that like aren't necessarily communicating with each other right now, but probably should be because it's all it's all interrelated. Well, thank you so much for sharing time with us today. Once more, your your website is the psychedelicassembly.com. So please go to psychedelicassembly.com. You're you're having a launch event in the late winter? Uh February eighteenth is the date that we've landed on with Dr. Dennis McKenna. He's coming out for uh the re-release of his book, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. Um so he'll be out in New York signing it when we open the space. So if you're anywhere in relation to New York, please make the pilgrimage in February and uh, and catch this event and support Kat and her team and this amazing beacon for the psychedelic culture in our young century. Thank you so much for your time today, Kat. Thank you for having me. In this age of digital everything, it's uh, it's really refreshing to find a project that aims to bring back person-to-person gatherings. And I mean in-person, not by way of email or Zoom, but in-person conversations. I'm really anxious to see how this psychedelic community center moves ahead because, well, every city can use a space like this, and the model that Kat and her friends are developing is something that we can all learn from as we continue to congregate with more and more of the others. It's very comforting for me to see these young people moving ahead with some of the dreams that us older guys have been carrying around for much of our lives. It's nice to know that the work not only goes on, but it continues to mature as the psychedelic community begins to come together. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends. <laughs>